You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 82. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Paul Zimmerman. Today we try to answer the question, is digital preservation really preservation? Let's get to it. All right, welcome to the show, everybody. Welcome, Paul. How are you doing today? Doing pretty good, Chris. How are you doing? Not too bad, not too bad. Getting over my first uh, cold in a few years and hopefully the only one. So, you know, there is there is that. I'm sure lots of people are sick coming out of spring and into summer. But either way, hopefully your technology is not sick. So let's talk about that. No, <laughs> technology is okay around here. <laughs> yeah, terrible what? <laughs> terrible segue. That's what that was. That's what the Oh, okay. Segue. Yeah. You want to start um, over? Uh, no, no, I'm, I'm keeping it. So um, <laughs> anyway... Uh, I may as well keep all the bad stuff because I never keep any of my bad stuff. But anyway, so you brought this topic to us and it's kind of interesting. Uh, you know, we're going to talk about digital preservation. And just before we get into that, uh, this kind of came up in the last recording we had of the CRM Archaeology podcast, which if I get my dates right, I think that's actually coming out after this episode. I'm not really sure because we're a few ahead on that uh, on that podcast. Mm-hmm. But either way, we had this big argument about preservation and what does preservation actually mean and different things. We didn't really get into digital preservation, but it's kind of all becoming one and the same these days, you know, because even if we're recording regular archaeological sites, there's a digital component to that that we also need to preserve as we record it. So anyway, just to mention that, check out the CRM Archaeology podcast, episode 140, I believe. And uh, whatever it is, I'll put the link in the show notes and uh, and that link will work when the episode comes out. But for now, we're going to talk about digital preservation. So, Paul, why don't you uh, bring us into this topic? Yeah. So um, I am looking forward to hearing that episode of the CRM podcast because, um, you know, I think that we have different takes on this topic today. For sure. (laughs) <laughs> in our notes here you've got yes and i've got no <laughs> and i think we probably have some uh, some pretty strong feelings but i think that there are also probably um a lot of uh a lot of area in between there of just slightly different takes on things that, that we'll find some agreement so uh really why i propose this particular topic of uh digital preservation is it really preservation is a couple weeks ago i went to a panel discussion at google here in new york city uh, Google Arts and Culture had a big kind of kickoff event with a new project they're doing with the World Monuments Fund. And so they had a panel discussion and archaeologists and two archaeologists that we know were on that panel. So uh, we mean myself and like I often mention my wife is an archaeologist, art historian, ancient Near Eastern archaeology and art history uh, Mm -hmm. at the Met. And so some of her colleagues and we all went to go cheer on, I guess, our uh, our friends, our colleagues that are going to be on this, <laughs> this panel discussion. Um, so the, uh, the the people that we knew were uh, Salam Al-Kuntar, who's at Rutgers, and Helen Malko, who's at Columbia. Uh, Salam is from Syria. Helen is from Iraq. Uh, from Google, representing Google was somebody, he's an archaeologist, apparently, a uh, Mayanist called uh, Chance Kofner. And then the, the panel discussion was mediated was moderated excuse me by cnn's arwa damon uh and so it was a really good discussion it was very interesting but the whole purpose of this was uh to kind of showcase what google was doing with what they were calling digital preservation um and i was very frustrated listening to it not again by um by 
Arwa Salam or Helen. They, uh, I thought they really had their heads on straight. But Google, I felt, kept on shifting between what I would call documentation and what they were calling preservation. And it was clear mm-hmm. that you know the WMF people and certainly the archaeologists from Syria and Iraq uh, had a very different sense of what was meant by, by preservation than what Google was meaning. And Google, I mean, don't get me wrong, I think that's kind of cool what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were talking about doing all sorts of different kinds of 3D reconstructions, laser scannings, working with SciArc. Um, but I wanted to scream. I was like, you're not actually doing preservation. So afterwards, I went and I vented on, uh, on Twitter and got a little bit of a uh, thread going about uh, preservation is is what they're calling preservation really preservation, and uh, and the sense I got from people responding was that a lot of archaeologists um, have kind of the same sense I do. What it's what's being done is interesting, uh, it's worthwhile, it's probably even good, but that it doesn't rise to the level of preservation. Um, and I know from your notes here that uh, that you think somewhat differently. So do uh, you want to give your take? Well. Yeah, I do. And before I do that, though, I, I got a question. Did they address the the two different sorts of meanings of digital preservation before they, they started? They absolutely and, did not. And that was a problem yeah. because, um, you know, I am actually I opened up the, the Web page to their project here on Google Arts and Culture Project WMF Iraq. We'll put that in the show notes. Uh, and the headline there says "Preserving Iraq's Heritage." That was the name of the uh, the event as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the subheading says, "Discover how ancient wonders at risks are being recorded and remembered." Okay, interesting. I mean, it yeah. does seem like they're 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 using a particular sense of the word preservation that's somewhat different than um, than what I would personally use. Yeah, because you gotta you gotta define all these terms first, because you know I. I when I think of digital preservation, I think of a couple things. I think of I think of what they're talking about, you know, 3D scans and all these sorts of ways we can take the physical and turn it into ones and zeros, you know, that sort of that sort of idea. But also, you know, preservation of actual digital information as well, you know, information that's born digital. Uh, you know, we need to preserve that, and um, and then and then you come down to the word preservation. Because the word preservation has different meanings to different people. Did, does it mean when you're referring to physical things, let's, let's, let's say a site in Iraq, um, does preserve necessarily mean the actual structure in the buildings? Does it mean the cultural meaning behind those? Does it mean the history and heritage associated with those? You know, does it mean the stories involved that we know that are, that are part of those? Or does it mean the entire package? So... When you're talking about that, you know, because we we can't, you know, we can't preserve everything in the entire world, and I don't think we should either, including buildings. I mean, and there's very good reasons for that. Some buildings, yes, because mm-hmm. if they're very special, very unique, you know, we don't have any other examples. I think I think we've got a plenty of space on this planet to preserve those sorts of things. But when it comes down to you know preserving buildings of a certain time period or whatever like here in Reno they've got this whole mid-century modern kick that they're on because a lot of buildings were knocked down in the 40s and 50s for the mid-century modern movement and they put up all these hotels and things like that well now people want to preserve those and I'm like okay do you want to preserve them just because they're they're old and unique and they're from the 50s and that's what you think of as Reno or do you want to preserve them just because they're they're old buildings because if that's the only reason we're doing it then that's, I'm glad we haven't been doing that for 150 years because I don't want to live in the old West in Reno in a wooden shack. 
And, you know, because <laughs> that's what we'd be doing if we if we saved everything. Um, you know, so so defining the terms and figuring out what preservation means is incredibly important, you know, starting point. So I don't know that that that's where I'm starting with this. Yeah. So, again, I mean, we get trained as we go through uh, grad school in particular, uh, and mm. most archaeologists have uh, MAs and or PhDs. Um, we get trained really that that defining our terms is a very important part of uh, of laying out any argument. And I really felt sure. like Google was skipping over this. And I think that it's actually not just Google. I mean, there's uh, an ad I saw on TV the other day uh, from Microsoft basically doing the same sort of thing. It was showing how they were using drones and laser scanning to preserve uh, buildings in uh, in conflict zones. Um, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know? Um, yeah, that that I think is a little bit problematic. I think that that we're seeing something that's um that's you know di- using divergent terms or at least not fully def- fully fleshed out ways of thinking of what preservation means uh, in a popular sense. That you know it's diverging from how archaeologists and probably preservationists as well uh, think of these things. And so before we jump in too wholeheartedly to recording everything and calling it preservation, uh, I think that we have to understand what um, what the different facets are of this of the of these projects. Now a big part, and again I said there was a, there is a lot of value to what Google had to show off that day and the WMF had to show off. Uh, and part of that, and that's what's available you know on the web is uh, through Google Arts and Culture is uh, is this platform. You know, so mm-hmm. there are stories, they call them, and they're, they're kind of like blog posts, but then they're also fairly richly linked to very high quality images, to 3D reconstructions, to other kinds of media. Um, and that sort of a platform is one part of what they mean by preservation, because clearly what they mean is, uh, is education and preserving the memory of things that might be lost or might be threatened. That's, that's valuable. Um, is it sure. preservation? Is it something else? Is it better defined as public outreach? Um, you'd mentioned the digital preservation. Well, assuming that this platform doesn't disappear in six months, as you know, things on the internet sometimes tend to do, and Google really puts a lot of skin in the game and decides to to keep it around and keep it uh, and keep it active and adapt to the future for the next, let's say. 15, 20 years, then yeah, I guess that is one form of preservation, at least preservation of the digital recordings yeah. <laughs> of, uh, of real monuments. Well, and that's, that's problematic as well, too. Like if Google's leading the charge on this and these things are stored on Google tr- servers, I mean, Google's still a privately held company. <laughs> I mean, right. it's, not a, it's not a government institution. If Google decides to just get out of this business because it's not profitable or they decide, hey, we got to make some cuts, uh, we need server space or something happens, well, then it just gets cut. You know, where does it go? What's the what's the plan for that? I'm sure somebody's addressing that, but I'm just, you know, I don't know that 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 has to be in place. Um, and I think I think going back to digital preservation, like, you know, it, I think it's really great. And I do call it preservation, and I think others would agree to me, would agree with me, if certain circumstances were to happen. And what I mean by that is, let's say you know they go out to some ancient city or even any city, let's say, and you know use drones and satellite imagery and all kinds of other stuff to really map out a city, not like the crappy 3D Google Earth we have now, but like really map out a city and figure out what everything is down to the finest detail. Some would not call that preservation. However, you know, a week later after they do that, the whole place is leveled by uh, an earthquake. And now that's the only thing we have. 
Now that's the only instance we have of any of those buildings, the original layout, all that other stuff. We've essentially preserved that city in that one moment in time using those methods. So that would be preservation. You know, uh, we'd all like to just keep everything and and not touch it and make sure it stays pristine from the day it was created. However, it's just not feasible. You know what I mean? And uh, no, of so course I think it's not feasible. But I would I would argue that that's not pre- or that's preserving, but only one small aspect of things. Sure, sure, yeah. It's preserving what we can preserve. It's not a total mm-hmm. preservation. It's not a hundred percent preservation. But it's you know what? Uh, now now let's. This is the Archaeotech podcast, so let's go nuts with this for a second, right? Let's let's think way into the future. So we've collected all these data. We've got when you collect point cloud data for a um, like a photogrammetric model of a building. I mean, you're talking about billions of points, billions and billions of points. When say like Agisoft PhotoScan, whatever photo, whatever software you're using, creates that model. I've done this before. And it, I mean, it's billions of data points. So if I have all these data points and then sometime way in the future, somebody takes this data set and they turn it into a, like a photorealistic virtual reality thing where I can be walking down the street, you know, you can knock me out unconscious, wake me up into this virtual reality world that's photorealistic and I can walk around in there. And then maybe I've got on, the, you know, the touch sensitive pressure suit and all that other stuff. And I can like walk around this building and feel it. Is that not, for all intents and purposes, preserved almost 100%? Just because it exists as ones and zeros, I'm able to experience it in a way that that when the building was created was not possible and the building no longer exists. So now I can do that. That's what I'm thinking about when we record the data now. Yeah, I would, I would still argue that you're missing so many things. Um about the actual structure. I mean, both the environment that's in, you're not getting the the sense of what the air smells like and feels like, and you're not hearing the sounds around you necessarily, uh, which are all part of, you know, any architectural monument anywhere in the world. Um, sure. If that building is also in downtown Reno, I would just say, if that building's in downtown Reno, I don't want to smell what the air smells like around that building anyway, so. No, but uh, but then the other thing, uh, and this is is a little, you know, that one's kind of trite almost, um, but but here's something that is real about about these recording techniques. Uh, These point clouds and such we're getting are just surfaces, right? Mm -hmm. So if you take, uh, you know, your point cloud here, one of the examples on this uh, Preserving Rocks Heritage is... uh, is the Babylon, the the processional way at Babylon, just past mm-hmm. the Ishtar Gate. Uh, you know, very well-known monument. Um, but that's representing not just one stage of that structure. You know, this has probably been built, modified slightly, reconstructed, uh, weathered, and so many, over so many different years. You know, when I used to record, uh, when I would uh, record as a surveyor in the field with the total stations. One big important thing that we had to do was when we were recording uh, architecture was indicating bonds and non-bonds between walls because it told us a lot about the phasing of the construction of the building. Uh, We'd Mm -hmm. show things that were additions however we could. A lot of that is not accessible unless you're doing a deep dive into the uh, into the construction techniques and into the uh, the history of the particular building that's being recorded you know since we are mostly focused mm-hmm. on buildings here with this kind of preservation uh discussion preservation rather um you know we're not getting a lot of the the history that is actually there but it's not necessarily visible on the surface right right the history of that that object um of that building 
So, you you know, I find I find all these places, all these things that are not being recorded in this big push to preserve digitally these monuments. I find all the things that are not being recorded to be a little upsetting to me. Not again that I think that it's bad that they're doing what they're doing. I think it's in fact very good, and I think it's potentially very important and very useful. But I think that um, I fear that it's going to take up so much of the energy and what available funds there are, uh, and mind share amongst the the general public as to what these buildings are, look like, represent, how they were used, so on and so forth. That mm-hmm. um, that we're going to overlook or not have the the space the resources available to actually do the the deep dive to how they actually function as structures or even more importantly um, how they function within their community and um, I think Mm -hmm. that's something I want to come back to uh, because I was brought up by uh, by Helen and Salam at that uh, at that talk but they were discussing because WMF is focused very much also on uh, on reconstruction of of existing monuments not just recording but uh for sure but trying to preserve and reconstruct in some cases existing monuments so they there was a whole side discussion on that that um you know maybe after the break we can get back to a little bit but there's a lot more i think going on in preservation uh just than you know taking point clouds of the surfaces available of buildings okay well we definitely have a lot more to talk about and like you said it's uh we can do that after the break because it's a good time to do that so Let's take a break, and then on the other side, we'll continue this discussion about digital preservation. In the meantime, head over to our website, arcpodnet.com forward slash architect forward slash 82, and leave your own comments about digital preservation on the podcast. Back in a second. The Archaeology Podcast Network has partnered with T Public to bring you some awesome gear that looks good, promotes archaeology, and puts a few pennies in our pockets so you can get free podcasts. Check out our designs at arcpodnet.com slash shop. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop. This network is listener supported. We're trying to move away from paid advertising while also creating new shows and supporting the ones we have. The APN has never and will never make a serious profit on our podcast. Every little dime we make goes back into the network and improving show quality. So become a member today at www.arcpodnet.com slash members to show your support, get some extras, and be a benefactor for archaeological education. Members get stickers, a coffee mug, a t-shirt, bonus content, early access to episodes, a private Slack team to talk to other members and the hosts, and full access to training on Team Black over at arccert.black. So check out our memberships at www.arcpodnet.com slash members today and support archaeological education. That's www.arcpodnet.com slash members. Now back to the show. Okay, we are back on the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 82, talking about digital preservation and, uh, you know, really whether or not that is actually preservation. Paul, it seems like they're focusing and, you know, you left this uh, link here on our notes. And as you said, we'll put that in the show notes. And I've been kind of glancing at this Web page. Of course, a lot of the sites that they're talking about here are, um, you know, Middle Eastern sites and, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of sites that are really under threat for um, for being destroyed. And, and a lot of sites have been destroyed uh, because of uh, ISIS and conflict and, you know, different things happening throughout the last few years and the last few decades, really. So. Keeping that in mind, I think I'm okay with the money and time and effort that's being spent on doing this type of preservation, simply because 
hopefully if we can do this first, you know, if the building is actually destroyed, if the building's destroyed by bombs or, or what have you, bulldozers, who knows what, but if the buildings are destroyed, this type of preservation will at least give us the building back if if we can do future reconstruction or something like that. And if we don't do reconstruction, we can at least have that. And then a lot of the other archaeological information, as long as the entire site isn't bulldozed, a lot of the other archaeological information, like the building's association with other buildings and position within the the, the framework of the, the city or, or village or whatever it is, um, and then you know any other artifacts, any other digs that need to be done to, to find any other stuff, uh, all that all that can theoretically be done at a later date. And then we can add to the picture that they're building right now. So um, I think this is a, a decent first step in an area where, you know, destruction is imminent. And in other places where destruction is not imminent, maybe maybe that's a, an expense that can be done at the end of the project, you know, or at a later phase versus, you know, spending all that money and time doing that right now. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Well, um, you know, again, I, I do think that it's useful. I do think that it's recording, but, um, you know, the academic in me just wants to not call it preservation <laughs> and call it yeah. digital recording, you know, yeah. and leave it at that. And and the dissemination, I want it to be public outreach. I want it to be education. I want it to be, you know, digital repository and digital preservation in the way that you kind of hinted at earlier about preserving mm -hmm. uh, the access to these data sets, to these reconstructions. Um those are all good things, you know, uh, mm -hmm. but when it comes to, pres to preservation, that's, you know, I think that that involves a lot more. Um, you mentioned reconstruction, and that was the point that I wanted to get to with uh, that, that Helen and uh, Salam had brought up during that panel discussion. Uh, I'm not sure which one of them used the term first, but they both ran with it. And what they wanted to do was, you know, and mind you, they're both from the Middle East, one's from Iraq, one's from Syria. They're both very well aware of the conflict, of people's lives being affected. And they said that they were really much more interested in restoration than reconstruction because reconstruction has tended to focus strictly on the, um, on the physical monuments, on the building. You know, mm -hmm. uh, minarets been knocked down, famous minarets been knocked down. We rebuild it as closely as possible to what it was like before. Restoration is that monument within its community, within the community of people who live and grew up in that area, of the neighborhoods of people that have been destroyed. You know, and so this is well beyond just the. Um, this is well beyond what archaeology itself can do, but because for them, archaeology is context is contextualized within their communities and their own personal life histories and such they were nervous about this focus just being on strictly you know pour a bunch of western money into um into building something back that's been destroyed and have it be kind of a static monument i'm using the term in a different term here in a different sense here now but uh, mm -hmm. a static record of what used to be there but forgetting that what used to be there was part of a living breathing human community um, and that they were very interested in that part uh, of this whole equation, which was also, you know, well outside of what Google is doing. Google might be able to highlight the importance and record the uh, the physical appearance of uh, of these objects, of these buildings, of these monuments. Um, mm -hmm. 
but uh, and then WMF might be interested in rebuilding them or you know stopping the damage being done to them in various means. Um, but they wanted to even to be a deeper dive and to look at uh, this whole notion of restoration. So for them, I think that, uh, and I don't want to really put words into their mouth, but I thought that that was a really fine distinction they'd drawn. Um, okay. Preservation is much more than just the physical building, but it's preserving something of the uh, the, the community that, uh, that that building used to be part of. So... Let me ask you a hypothetical then, because uh, I'm interested in this answer. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, the Industrial Revolution in the United States and really across the world, uh, or at least the Western world, uh, really transformed our neighborhoods, our cities, and our landscapes. And, you know, a lot of buildings were taken down. A lot of different things happened. A lot of new buildings were put up. Skyscrapers, you know, cities were created. New York itself, you know, the city you're sitting in right now, dramatically changed at the end of the uh, 1800s and early 1900s. and I guess my question is, if we were to have another significant change in technology like that, where there was just this rapid expansion of everything and, you know, the idea of preserving a building in place, whether for safety reasons or whatever, just can't just cannot simply cannot happen. So we have to come up with a way to, quote, digitally preserve these buildings. What would satisfy your your sensibilities for preservation, knowing full well that we can't actually preserve the actual building. What kinds of things do you think that we would have to do in order to really preserve the character and feel and setting of, of these structures? That, that's a great question. Actually, I think that it's probably a fool's errand. I don't think you really can preserve in that sense everything, mm -hmm. uh, nor do I think we really should. But, um, you know, keeping mind being mindful of what it is that we're doing are we recording or are we preserving are we preserving or are we constructing are we reconstructing are we <laughs> restoring uh, the you know within the importance of a, a building within its community uh, all those are different levels of things and you know for the value that they're doing of recording and preserving digitally and disseminating these uh these data sets um I think that we just have to be mindful that there are many other aspects. If, I mean, if there's a building that I know that's going to be torn down uh, and it has some historical significance, and this happens, like you said, in New York all the time, um, you know, I'd want as much of the physical appearance of the building preserved mm -hmm. as possible through whatever means, through photography, through drawing, through, you know, 3D reconstructions, whatever, uh, as much of the documentation of it, you know, most of the buildings here aren't built so long ago that we don't actually have documentation of, you know, who built it, what was right. the history of it in terms of the legal documents that had to be drawn up and whatnot. Th that would all be there. If we're talking about something ancient where we don't have that kind of documentation, uh, I think that it would be interesting to have as much of the physical. And then if you have access to uh, explore it structurally some to get the uh, the the history of its construction, destruction, um, modification, so on, that would be worthwhile as well, you know, much more archaeological in that sense. Um, and, you know, we're able increasingly to gather and process and store greater and greater data sets than we ever were before. Uh, again, you know, we are on the Architect podcast and we talk about collecting all sorts of data. Uh, I would be game for collecting as much as possible at the moment, um, knowing that we're going to miss out on a lot. 
Yeah. Uh, but again, I wouldn't then say job done. I'd say <laughs> this is the best we could do. Well, I'm, I'm going to go back on my own argument um, because I, while, while I am a, always a big fan of everything digital and the, you know, more and more in my, in the, in the last couple of years, I don't know what flip, what switch flipped in my brain, but I like am not saving anything. Like my wife and I have talked about it. Good thing we're on the same page. Like we want an apartment <laughs> that looks like an Apple store. Like I just want, you know, I want very few things in there and I just like, I'm happy with the starkness of the whole thing and I don't want anything. I don't know what happened, but I used to collect everything and now I want nothing. And I think I collected too much. And uh, so anyway, that being said, I agree with you um, in some respects because you can never preserve 100% digitally a building. And and some a couple examples I can think of this, you know, if you were to fly, you know, drones and, and high high resolution laser scanners through New York City right now. Sure, you would gather, let's let's just say one building. Let's just say it's a hundred year old apartment building, right? And they're going to tear that down and put up a new one. Well, you can scan the outside of that. You can get the character. You can have, um, you know, air sniffers outside and, and smell the urine in the trash and, you know, preserve <laughs> that for all time. <laughs> you can you can have microphones recording the sounds at different times of the day, different times of the year. You can do all those things. But what you're not going to get is in this hundred-year-old apartment building, you're not going to get the the notches in the um, in the wall where somebody marked the height of their kids over the over four decades and and several generations of families mm-hmm. living there. You're not going to get the the things that people hid inside the walls because people always hide stuff inside walls, and you're, you're not going to see those small subtle changes that happen throughout the years. I don't know what value there is to that, but you're also not going to be able to record it. And you know, thinking. Thinking about that, I just read an article, I think it was yesterday, about this woman in France. And I don't know if you saw this. Um, we're recording on uh, June 19th. So if you want to find this article, it was around June 18th or so. Uh, there was a woman who fled Paris in 1939 when the Germans came in. And she fled south to um, free France or whatever, the unoccupied uh, France. And then never went back. Like she set up a whole new life for herself down there and never went back. Well, her family found out when she died in 2010, her family found out she'd been paying rent on this apartment in Paris the entire time. And no one had been in there since 1939. Hmm. And they opened the door when they went in to do an inventory of her assets, basically. Um, Whoever was in charge of that, they opened the door to this apartment and it literally had never been opened since 1939. Like it looked like a time capsule from when she left. And wow. it turns out she had an affair with some famous artist and there was a painting in there that ended up selling for like $3.9 million and uh, all this other stuff. Like there were still like lotions and perfumes on her little vanity mirror. You know, the whole thing covered in dust. My question is, really, the landlord never went in? Like just to make sure, you know, what the hell's going on here? I guess as long as the rent check's flowing in. But my point with that is, if somebody had said, let's take this 100-year-old building in France, probably even older than that, I don't know how old the building itself is, and let's preserve this digitally by scanning it with drones, you never would have seen that apartment. You never would have seen inside that right. apartment. People have been walking, hundreds of millions of people have walked by that apartment and didn't know there was a 1939 time capsule sitting right inside of there. So there's not, we can't see everything digitally. And to really fully honestly reproduce something in full digital fidelity we'd need something like a transporter from star trek that literally pulls apart all Mm -hmm. your atoms and reconstructs them back in the same place and that's just simply not possible so you're right and i'm going to agree i'm going to agree with you on this digital preservation is not true preservation 
because we can't preserve 100% of the object as much as we think we can, we just simply can't. And we'll, we'll never get all of it. Well, I'm going to throw one other wrinkle into this. And this, again, <laughs> is, is informed by, uh, by that reconstruction versus restoration idea. And this is because you and I both come from the American tradition of archaeology, where it's a uh, social science comes from anthropology. Mm-hmm. Right. So we're not even that concerned about the building as a building. I mean, my specialty was architecture. I love ancient buildings. I love architecture and stuff. But we actually are thinking about it more often than not as, you know, the contents of that building and what's all going on in that apartment and the human stories behind it. Because that's where it really gets interesting is where we start talking about people. Um, And that I can't imagine any kind of digital (laughs) recording that's going to accurately preserve any of that. Uh, you know, so, you know, maybe you move along uh, back your direction a little bit, <laughs> what you originally said, and say, you know, well, with that understanding, um, yeah, well, it's preservation, maybe a bit with a little asterisk on it. Mm-hmm. It's preservation of the physical. Yeah. It's preservation of the surfaces. It's preservation of the appearance. It's preservation of whatever else that we can manage to record. Um, but, you know, we're we're going to miss out the human part. Um, or a big chunk of the human part, you know, mm-hmm. and I think that's just life. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, it's sad, but, uh, but it's true. Well, okay. I'm going to put it, uh, you know, that notion got encapsulated in a Twitter thread of mine, <laughs> uh, as people went off the rails with jokes. Um, and so one of my friends said, Sorry, your house burned down, but here's a beautiful 3D model I printed of it. <laughs> it's just like the real thing, really highly oh detailed. God. Yeah, well, okay, it's a tenth of scale. And, right. uh, you know, but, you know, and then people ran with that joke and yeah. you can guess how stupid it gets fast. Yeah. But, you know, there's there, we all understand as archaeologists that there's only so much we actually can record. And the bit that probably gets most archaeologists' juices flowing, you know, that the stuff about where it actually becomes informative of people's lives is going to be extremely limited. Yeah. yeah so we preserve what we can. And that's, that's the key right there. You know, preserve what we can. And some is better than nothing, of course. It's, it's, it's mm-hmm. being careful that laws and regulations don't change and really attitudes don't change to where, you know, that sort of digital preservation that we're capable of now becomes the standard. You know what I mean? The standard should always be, let's do some sort of high level of preservation. If we can't do that, we start backing off to these other levels of preservation and, you know, and then, and then dealing with those. Um, I think, uh, I think it also comes down to as well, I hate to say it, but a changing attitude towards things like that and feelings about place and, and, and all those things like you, you go to a, um, you go to a national monument that's like a historic building or something like that. I'll never forget uh, seeing the um, Brown v. Board of Education building. Uh, that's a national park now. And where, where is that? Kansas or Missouri or something like that? I don't know, somewhere in the Midwest. But um, anyway, we walked in, we went through there because we happened to be driving across the country and, and, and saw it and, you know, figured we'd knock that national park off our list. And it's just, it's a building. I mean, let's not, there's no bones about it. It's not a special building. It's not special architecture. It's not special anything. It's just where this incident took place and therefore dot, dot, dot significant, right? So now it's a national park. Mm-hmm. It'll never be changed. And I feel like, I feel like walking through there and seeing the manufactured displays and the display cases and the wall, the wall pieces, and then the video screens showing different things with the trials and stuff like that. And then, you know, all these other stuff. I mean, 
I don't have that much sensitivity towards place to begin with. Like I don't walk into a place and like get the shutters and think, wow, this is crazy. You know, I just, I just don't have those sorts of feelings, but I know a lot of people do, you know, it's like they walk into an mm-hmm. old building, they have that sort of haunted sort of feeling to it. But I think they took this old building that they're quote preserving by making it a national park and completely destroyed the feel of the setting of the whole place by making it so artificial. You know what I mean? Like it, all the artificialness mm-hmm. is inside this original building yet you can't really feel a thing anymore. You know, it's just, it's just simply gone because it's now a national park. And I just don't know if they did a very good job at that. I feel like national parks, they're better at making geological landscapes feel pristine <laughs> rather than artificial <laughs> landscapes. So I don't know. That's just my thought. And I, I just seeing other people walk through there, you know, some of the older adults were really thoughtful and looking at some of the stuff because they probably remembered, you know, some of that stuff. But mm-hmm. uh, but the kids walking through there, they're like, what the hell are we doing here? When do we get to the amusement park? You know, when do we get to the whatever? And they just right. they just weren't having it. And I think that's the attitude coming forwards, coming up, honestly, amongst the youth regarding places, regarding buildings and things like that. So it'll be interesting to see what the definition of preservation is in 20 years when these kids are the preservationists. Yeah. So. Yeah, I have no idea. And yeah. that's, I've been around kids for quite a while here at the school. Um, yeah. I don't know if they have a fundamentally different view of, I don't want to say sacred spaces, but I'll say sacred spaces. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> sacred spaces than we do. <laughs> uh, yeah. And do we have some fundamentally different views of sacred spaces than uh, than our predecessors? Mm-hmm. Probably, I guess. I think so. I mean, I walk into a cathedral and I have a different sense of you know I might have I might be awed by it, mm-hmm. but I am probably awed by it for a very different reason than my uh, than my ancestors would. Yeah, been. yeah, probably. So. Okay, well, this has been a great discussion. Again, check the show notes for uh, a couple of links we've got in there and for the CRM Mark podcast talking about preservation in a, in a very different way, but still talking about preservation and kind of defining it and what that means. All five of us were on that show, so there's a lot of different opinions. Um, and uh, and again, like I said, go to arcpodnet.com forward slash archaeotech. That's A-R-C-H-A-E-O-T-E-C-H forward slash 82 and leave your own comments. You can also comment on Facebook or wherever you saw this post. So uh, we appreciate it all coming in and uh, you can find our email addresses and Twitter handles there as well if you want to contact us directly. So thanks for that. And we'll be back in a second with our app of the day segment. Hey, podcast fans and digital archaeologists. Have you heard about WildNote? It's a data collection app that works online or offline on your smartphone or tablet, iOS, or Android. It allows you to collect field data easily, manage data efficiently, and generate data reports and site records effortlessly. We have a growing list of state site forms built in for your use and some generic forms that will work anywhere. Check out the shovel testing and photograph forms. You can get a free all-access 30-day trial today by going to wildnoteapp.com. That's wildnoteapp.com for your free 30-day trial. of the webinars and training offered by the big organizations not being free for members and not really covering what we need? Team Black has the answers. Check out arccert.black forward slash main for our upcoming webinar schedule. All of our webinars happen once a month and seating is limited. Learn everything from field tech basics to drones to digital workflows. We have more classes coming online every month. Classes are always one hour. Classes like building a CV and getting a job are always free. That's right. We'll help you get a job, then we'll be here when you want to level up your skills. 
If you are a professional subscriber to the APN at arcpodnet.com slash members, then you get all of Team Black's offerings for free as part of your membership. We have Team Black memberships coming that will give the same for the APN. So $20 a month gets you all the APN swag and extras plus free training from Team Black. So check out arccert.black for more information and level up your skill set today. That's arccert.black. Now back to the show. Hello and welcome back to the Archaeotech Podcast. This is episode 82. We were talking about digital preservation and uh, now we're moving on to the app of the day segment. Um, I was talking a lot about Google Arts and culture and so my app of the day, I mean, I, of course, is going to be the Google app, uh, Google <laughs> Arts and Culture app. Um, you know, I, I probably should have talked about something else, but uh, we're recording this now on June 19th um, and uh, we're right in the middle of the World Cup. Well, no, not right in the middle. We're after the first week. I spent a glorious weekend, combined birthday and Father's Day, just, you know, plopped nice. in front of the TV set, watching the games. Uh, so maybe I should talk about the FIFA app, except for there's nothing special to talk about with it. You know, find out what the games are, who's playing, what the matches are, what the sides are, blah, blah, blah. Um, Google Arts and Culture app made a big splash last winter when it came out because it had this uh, selfie feature where you could uh, give it access to your camera uh, and um, and it would take a picture and do some measurements off your face and try to find some artwork uh, in museums that they'd partnered with that looked somewhat like you and you know so people were posting online their uh, their doppelgangers from various famous or not so famous artworks and uh, and then after that little flash in the pan a couple weeks of lots of people doing that I think a lot of people just uh, deleted the app off their phone that's Certainly, what I did. I didn't like any of the uh, mm -hmm. the matches that it made for me. <laughs> um, I've since shaved my beard and uh, and tried it again, and I still don't like any of the uh, matches it made for me. <laughs> um, <laughs> but because I was talking about Google Arts and Culture today, I re-downloaded it and um, and went to look to see what it is. And basically, it's a lot like if you go to the website, you get a very good sense of what's available on the app. You know, the uh, the selfie thing is down there. You scroll down a couple pages and you see it there. It's one of the top things. But for the most part, it's just organized uh, these stories uh, so I'm looking at it right now, cultural heritage, uh, 10 unusual musical instruments from around the world, music and dance. What is flamenco? Spotlight on and we've got a museum and so on. So that's, um, you know, it's a lot like uh, a blog aggregator. But again, with the weight and power of Google behind them with the different uh, with the different uh, partnerships they've made with museums and other cultural institutions. So. Uh, on the show notes for this episode, you know, I linked to the project WMF Iraq that uh, that they have on the website, and I also went and looked it up on Google Arts and Culture to see what they had available, and uh, and it's pretty much the same thing, just reformatted for the phone. It's nice and uh, and responsive, which is good. It uh, it reacts mm -hmm. very quickly. the uh, The web page has a number of three D models, uh, Babylonian. Uh, Two of them, actually, all three of the ones that they have are from Babylon uh, in Iraq. Um, the middle one, if you look at the page, is the Nabu Sharahari Temple. Um, and it's a 3D model. And I'll just mention that briefly. When I was at that Google thing, they had um, they had a VR set 
with that model. So you could actually go and do a walkthrough of that temple. And it was, it was, it was cool. I mean, I definitely enjoyed going and walking through uh, because I got a bit of a sense of how that building fit together, how the rooms work, what the layout was, um, how one would flow through it. Um, and that was cool. Uh, but I wanted to see then also with this, uh, with this Google Arts and Culture app, how they presented these 3D models and uh, and they do a fairly good job. Um, it doesn't, interestingly enough, it doesn't split it up so I could look at it in my Google Glass. It didn't give it to me in a uh, an immersive sort of 3D, but it presented the model and it's totally, you know, you're on my old slow uh, iPhone 6. It presented to me in a way that I could move around the model and, uh, and scroll around and view different things. So, you know, I still don't know that there's any huge value to this particular app uh, other than that selfie thing. And once the novelty of that wears off, um, <laughs> the novelty is worn off. But um, but if you are on a phone, I haven't compared it against their against looking at the website on the phone, you know, through the browser. Uh, but if you're on a phone, you know, and you are interested in what they have to present, it's a, it's a totally usable, uh, clean, not exciting, but not badly done in any sense, uh, interface for looking at the materials that they have on that website. Mm-hmm. Cool. So that's it. Uh, iOS and Android. And, um, and you can look at, if you're so interested, again, you can look at that WMFE Rock project um, on that Google arts and culture app and uh, and look at those 3d models and see if you agree that uh, that it's fairly responsive and uh, and works well on that particular format all right then well we'll check that out that's is uh of course in the show notes we'll have that link over there and it's of course available on android and ios since it is google uh so there it is um all right so my app i actually found uh because i i've mentioned before i i i I troll several lists of apps gone free, they call it, where, you know, they're usually, they usually cost mm. something. And uh, this one turns out to be uh, kind of fascinating. It's called Vectornator. Uh, unfortunately, it's iOS only. They're brand new on the market, so they might, they might make an Android app at some point eventually. Um, and as of June 19th right now, uh, it is currently free. They're listing it as free on their website. And on the iTunes store, um, you know, by the time this podcast comes out, it might not be free. Um, they do have $7.99 scratched out. So that's, I think, the price that they're looking at. However, um, this, is a, this is a vector drawing application. And it comes with, uh, it comes with I think, let's see, five uh, default, like five example uh, documents. And I looked at one of these called Futuristic City. And there are probably 50 different layers of things and uh, the tools they have to use and all these things in here are just really, really high quality and really well done. You know, you can bring in from an archaeological standpoint, you can do exactly what you can do with the app graphic that I've talked about quite a few times. And graphic is, is just an amazing vector drawing application that I've been using for years. I mean, I do all my my sketches on there for archaeology, you know, I'll, I'll take a photograph with my phone or my tablet of a, of a, say, a projectile point or something like that, drop it right into graphic, outline it, do all of my illustrations, whatever I need to do. And then, you know, you can remove the photo layer and you have just an illustration. Um, I did illustrations for PCS videos, if anybody remembers those. Um, I've done all my business cards in graphic. I do all that stuff. Well, Vectornator seems like a very on-par um, uh, on par applications. So if you're not, 
If you're not into supporting Autodesk for some reason and you want to support some a little more independent creators, check out Factornator. Um, I don't think you'll be disappointed. Uh, one of the cool things too here is the exports. So you can actually export these as you can export it as a Vectorinator file, whatever that looks like, just into your file system on your phone or your tablet, and then access that you know from another device that also has Vectorinator on it. You can also send it to Illustrator, uh, Adobe Illustrator. So if you're an Illustrator fan, this will save out as an Illustrator file that you can open up in Illustrator. So uh, I would presume that you can actually open this as an Illustrator. You can open an Illustrator file here too, but I haven't tried that. Um, but the simple fact that you can go back and forth, like if you're working on something in the field and then you know you just want to you, you just got to clean up or touch up to do and you don't want to do it in the field and waste that time sitting there because everybody else sitting in the truck waiting for you, then you can just, you know, finish it later, export it to Illustrator and do it on your computer back in the office. Um, you can also export as JPEG, PNG and SVG file, which is nice if you need to 3D print something later. Um, those are those are good files for that. Um, of course, PDF and then the Illustrator file. Um, and then you can also export to various locations just to your camera roll. You can print from here, you know, Facebook, Twitter, the whole thing. Um, you can do pretty much anything you want. So what this tells me, though, ultimately, is that, man, these applications for mobile devices are becoming desktop replacements because, and I've had people argue that with me before, but Really, when you look at some of the desktop apps that we have, that we use, and, and you look at the number of features that you use versus the number of features it's capable of doing, what you're getting with these mobile applications is you're getting kind of a stripped down version of a desktop application, like a fully 100% featured desktop application. But what you're getting in the mobile app is the stuff that you use like 99% of the time. And sure, there might be one thing that you want to do, like, for, like on graphic, there's one thing I always want to do, which is... Um, what do they call that? Do they call it like uh, uh, the, the aliasing, I think, the anti-aliasing or something, where basically you can remove a background of an image? I do that on my computer all the time. But on graphic, on mobile, I, I simply can't do it. That's the one thing I wish it did that irritates me. But that's the one thing. Everything else I can do on the mobile app, and it works really well for me. So um, I highly recommend this. If you're not currently using a vector drawing application um, or you want to try something different, you just go download this right now if you're listening to this. As long as it's still free, you, you can't go wrong. Um, I haven't used it much since I downloaded it a couple of weeks ago. But uh, I'm glad I did when it was free because if I ever do need it, then I have it right here. And it doesn't take up that much space on my phone. And uh, I've got it ready to go. So that's what I've got for my app of the day. Yeah, well, I uh, as you were talking, I downloaded it myself. And um, yeah, the iPhone is not the <laughs> ideal platform for a drawing app. But I, I've got to say, my old slow I, iPhone 6, um, this Vectornator is really yeah. responsive. Well, that's, that's the nice thing about vector drawing applications, because vector as opposed to raster, I always kind of get this mixed up a little bit. But vector is basically just ones and zeros and math. directions. It's math, exactly. So the, the, the processor on the phone can handle it easily. And... Uh, and and that's that's why they're vector drawing programs. That's why they have to you know kind of announce that, um, and that's why they work so well on mobile platforms. So yeah, yeah, yeah. And well, and vector drawing programs as opposed to raster drawing programs. I'm sure most of our listeners know this, but uh, they're scalable. Sure. Yep. You make it bigger, you make it smaller. It doesn't pixelate as opposed to a raster drawing. You make it bigger and it pixelates. Right. Or it gets fuzzy as it interpolates. Exactly. A vector is crisp, so you can use it really for for illustrations very well. You know, something that you're going to publish. Yeah, that's that's one thing. 
you know, I, I wasn't totally aware of that, but I was creating like my company logos and things like that <laughs> using graphic. Mm-hmm. But, it, <laughs> but once I did learn that, it turned out to be a good thing because, you know, when I would go create a website or something like that, you know, I, I need, I need one instance of my logo that's at 1920 by 1080 resolution. I need another one that's at 200 by 200 pixels. I need another one that's at 50 by 50 pixels for the favicon thing on the website. And instead of having to create all these different all these different uh, versions of the logo, I basically just had to duplicate the file, go in, resize the canvas, and then resize the um, resize the logo, and it resized perfectly every single time, no matter what I needed. In fact, I even needed a uh, um, I needed a door magnet. I was going on a mine that required your name of your company on the side of the vehicle for the first time ever. And I had to create a door magnet. So I found this company and they required my logo of a certain size. I just sized it to the size they needed, sent it off to them. They sent me a door magnet. It was perfect. And it looks great. It's crisp. It looks nice and it's done. So that's a good point to bring up. (sighs) Okay. Well, uh, Paul, I'm interested to see your thoughts on, on Vectornator. Maybe we can talk about that next time. Um, Yeah. I'm interested to play with it. Yeah. Yeah. All right, before we go, we got an email from, and I'm going to butcher your name, uh, Sebastian. I'm really sorry about that. I'm, I'm assuming I'm pronouncing your first name right, but uh, Sebastian, Sebastian, then I go and screw it up. Uh, Sebastian Hagenauer, I think, or 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 something like that. Um, either way, he said that he listened to our episode on conference posters and thought it was particularly interesting. And he said a few weeks ago, as of the writing of this email, um, so, so probably sometime in May, um, he presented, uh, him and his team presented a virtual model, um, during a poster session and he said, thought it might fit into our episode. So I took a look at some of the pictures he sent and they basically had th- 3d models and a whole, you know, VR thing set up. And it was like the toast of the poster session at this conference that he was at. And, uh, it was at the university of Cologne and, um, I'm just totally excited by that. It's amazing. I love the fact that he did that, that he listens to the podcast, that he saw this and said, you know, um, you know, this is right in line with what I'm doing. And that's, that's fantastic. So, um, thanks for writing in on that and, uh, uh, and keep up the great work. Um, this is fantastic. And I hope we can, we can get this kind of thing going in our country, um, for some of the conferences over here that at least I attend, um, in the United States here, because, uh, you've seen some, exp- I've seen some experimental things occasionally, but it's definitely not the norm. I mean, he, he's not saying his was the norm either. You know, his was the, the, the oddball that everybody came over to see, but that's good because they were excited by it. And you just got to keep that excitement going and, and, you know, get people excited about seeing stuff like that all the time. And, and not only just excited for the technology and the novelty aspect of it, but the usability and the, the, um, interactivity aspect of it, you know, just like, you know, show people that it's it's actually a better poster if you can if you can do it this way versus the old way so i don't know paul's pretty pretty cool getting that kind of email from one of yeah, our it really podcasts was. isn't it yeah so uh feeling dank sebastian <laughs> nice nice <laughs> All right. Well, thanks a lot. And again, if you're doing anything awesome in the tech space, you know, send us an email. Um, we'll of course ask you before we uh, uh, we read about it or or we or we talk about it on the podcast. Um, if you'd rather it would just stay private between us, then that's fine too. Um, we just like hearing from you guys. Uh, and if you've got anything you'd like us to talk about, or maybe you want to bring some of your research or something like that onto the show, then let us know that too um, in the comments or in an email or a tweet or whatever you want to do, whatever your medium of choice. Um, and we'll uh, we'll definitely talk about that and get you on. So, uh, anything else, Paul? No, that's about it for this week. 
All right. Sounds good. Well, thanks, everybody. And we will see you next time. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Architect Podcast. Links to items mentioned on the show are in the show notes at www.arcpodnet.com slash Archaeotech. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com and paul at lugal.com. Support the show by becoming a member at arcpodnet.com slash members. The music is a song called Off-Road and is license-free from Apple. Thanks for listening. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.